I'm jumping in with a quick message that I've added to all HR Coffee Time episodes to let you know that my group programme, Inspiring HR, is back. In case you haven't heard of it before, it's an intensive six-week programme for mid and senior level HR and people professionals. So if you're an HR business partner, HR manager, head of HR or HR director, or the people equivalent, so a people business partner, people manager, head of people or people director, and you'd like to build your confidence, your credibility and your impact at work, Inspiring HR could be perfect for you. We get started on Wednesday the 5th of June 2024 when we'll be meeting up over Zoom for two hours every week. The group sessions are a blend of group coaching, training and facilitation. They're supportive, encouraging and practical and each week has a slightly different focus. So in week one, we look at setting yourself up for success. Week two is about boosting your confidence. Week three focuses on being strategic in your role. Week four is all about building key relationships. Week five takes a deep dive into influencing at a senior level. And the final week looks at planning for the future. There's a link with the full details in the show notes for you. Or you can learn more by going to my website, Bright Sky Career Coaching, clicking on services and then clicking on Inspiring HR Group Programme. I would love to have you join us and to get to know you throughout the programme. But if you have any questions about Inspiring HR at all, please feel free to ask by getting in touch through the website and I would be very happy to answer them for you. Welcome to another episode of HR Coffee Time with me, Faye Wallace, a career coach and outplacement specialist with a background in HR, and I'm also the founder of Bright Sky Career Coaching. This podcast exists to help you have a successful and fulfilling career without working yourself into the ground. And after recording a few solo episodes in a row, it is wonderful to have a guest on the show again today. I'm excited to be able to tell you that he is Dr. Jonathan Ashong Lamptey, the host of one of my absolute favourite podcasts. If you haven't already listened to it, I'd really recommend that you give it a try after listening to HR Coffee Time today. It's called The Element of Inclusion. And one of the topics that Dr. Jonathan has covered a lot on his podcast is how organisations are going wrong when it comes to diversity and inclusion initiatives. In this episode, he takes us through seven common mistakes that he sees being made all of the time. And then incredibly helpfully, he also shares some advice on what to do instead. So let's get started and hear what he has to say. I really hope you're going to enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jonathan. It is wonderful to have you here. And before we dive straight into the questions I have for you, would you be happy to just share your story of how and why you decided to become an expert in the inclusion space? Because I know it isn't the original career path that you started off on. Well, first off, before I say anything, I want to say thank you very much, Faye, for having me here. I do have a confession before we start. I know that we are here for HR Coffee Time podcast. I don't work in HR and I don't have a coffee. So is it still okay for me to be here? Will your audience appreciate what we are talking about today? 
Well, I think given your amazing expertise in the inclusion and diversity space, you are very much welcome to be here, despite not working in HR and despite not having a coffee. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Faye. Thanks for having me here. It's been an interesting journey. So where do I start? The, probably the best place for me to start is in 2009. I was at the Obama inauguration, the first Obama inauguration, 2009. I was in Washington, DC. It was a very, very cold day. I was working as a chartered accountant at the time. So, you know, a lot of people, when they're talking about diversity and inclusion, they talk about how they're passionate about diversity. That wasn't my story. It all started back then. So I was at the Obama inauguration, came back, I'm working as an accountant, and every month I get a copy of Accountancy Magazine, which is as interesting as you would expect to be, to be a magazine <laughs> for accountants about accountancy. What would you? I'm sure it's riveting. I'm sure it's riveting. <laughs> so that riveting read, which normally I ignore, on this occasion... I opened it up, Faye, and the only reason I opened it is because there was a picture of Obama. Brings it back to the Obama inauguration. I open it up and it talks about the lack of black accountants in the UK accounting profession, specifically in leadership roles as well. Now, I found that fascinating because at the time, you know, I worked for what we would now call old media. So I had worked for Channel 4, I'd worked for Walt Disney, a lot of the, let's say, broadcasters in the UK, the media owners, they've been my clients. Also, I was an auditor. So I tell you all of this because it means that I spent a lot of time in different organizations with other accountants. And I didn't really meet any black accountants. And if you did meet them, they weren't always qualified. So this was something that I thought, oh, wow, what does that mean? So I called up the big four accounting body, um, accounting firms. I called, there's six accounting bodies. This all sounds so fascinating, right? I call them up and I literally tell them what I've just told you, Faye. Hey, I've read this magazine, Lack of Black Accountants. Is this true? Can I find out more? Like where, where do I even start? And I want everybody listening or reading this to really put this in their mind. I'm just a random person on doing my day job asking some questions that I don't know anything about. I didn't get any answers, none at all. Someone actually thought that I was a journalist. Someone put the phone down on me because of that. So now I'm starting to think, oh, this is really interesting. You have to remember, no, no one's really talking about diversity and inclusion, certainly not in accounting or in the professions. This started me on a path where I ended up quitting my job. I ended up starting a PhD this is at the London School of Economics in the end, and that there's a whole journey around that. And that this is what bring, brought me to you. So I ended up doing a PhD. Originally, it was about, I didn't let go of the whole black um, accountants in the UK. So I did do that. But I did what we would now, we would now call diversity and inclusion. Very much I looked at race, professions, but I built this critical mass of knowledge. And I left with a PhD. I, th there's a whole different story about what, uh, progressing in academia, whole different story about that. But I wanted to return back to the private sector and I wanted to share what I'd learned. And so I started a podcast. That's a nice, obvious thing to do, right? <laughs> now, the reason I started a podcast is because the defining characteristic of a PhD is that you make a contribution to human knowledge. 
you're going to contribute. And normally it's just a tiny dent in, you know, in this whole mass of knowledge. I realized that I had a lot to contribute and there wasn't enough clarity, precision about the way people were talking about diversity and inclusion. And that's what I did. That's what I started. That was five years ago when I started that podcast. Yeah. And I think that yours is one of the longest running podcasts that there actually is as far as the topics of diversity and inclusion are concerned. I do like saying that. Yes. <laughs> it's one of the longest running. It's not. And here's here's something funny as well for the audience. I actually applied to the Guinness Book of Records to see if I was the longest running DEI podcast in the world. I was. What did they say? I was. <laughs> and, and what's disappointing is I would like to know who is because someone deserves that accolade, right? But it's not me. But yeah, we, we're on episode 253, I think, this week. Um, five years. A lot of people start. And as you know, it's not an easy thing. It can be challenging. But I do have to say it's probably one of the most, it's probably the most rewarding thing I've done in my career outside of my PhD. It allows me to help lots of people, gives people an insight into your thoughts, beliefs, ideas, and just that, it's that idea of contributing again. Well, as you know, I am a huge fan of your podcast, The Element of Inclusion. In it, you point out that there are lots of ways that organisations are going wrong with their approach to diversity and inclusion. And I know that you've got this great acronym to explain what the main ways are that this is happening. And that acronym is Bristol, which is a funny coincidence because when we first met each other a couple of months ago, we realised that although we don't think we've met before, we probably have at least walked past each other or been in the same room together at some point because we were both studying at Bristol University at the same time when we were younger. How cool is that? How cool is that? I know, very cool, very cool. And anyway, back to the main point. So enough of the fact that we were actually there together and may have met each other before. Can you talk us through what your acronym BRISTOL stands for? Yes, and you're right, I do call it BRISTOL because my undergraduate degree was at Bristol University. And a lot of people don't know where to start, okay? So we're talking about diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging. There's a lot of different words used to describe the phenomenon. For the most part, is making a fair workplace. That's what most people tend to be thinking about. And I realized that it's sometimes it's not so much thinking about what you need to do. Sometimes it's thinking about what you need not to do. So almost like a not to do list. So what I realized is that when I looked at organizations, they were making seven common mistakes. And that is where we got the name Bristol. So I can go through a few of these. Um, so it's B-R-I-S-T-O-L. So the B stands for business case. Organizations tend to rely on a generic business case for diversity instead of actually finding one for themselves. Then R stands for reputation. Organizations are almost always focused on credibility indicators and their reputation. So that could be things like, let's get an award, let's get on a list. They focus on that instead of actually dealing with the, the specific problem. Um, I stands for intervention, thinking that we're going to focus on one huge intervention and that's going to fix it and everything's going to be fine. So we're going to spend a lot of money now and then forget about, don't worry about next year or the year after. So that's the I. Um, the S stands for size, one size fits all. 
what they often think is that, do you know what, what we're going to do for gender, we're going to apply that to race. We're going to apply that to disability. That often doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work. <laughs> the, T, the T stands for time, as in one at a time. So if you think of something like, let's talk about the gender pay gap. So gender pay gap, if we're looking at the, you know, in the UK, uh, and I'm not sure if most of your audience is in the UK, but in the UK, we've got the Equality Act 2010. That set out a requirement for organizations with more than 250 people to report, basically call it gender pay reporting. Any differences in average pay, bonuses, a whole load of things like that, very compliance driven. Now, for the most part, any organization answering that question will say, oh, well, women are underrepresented in senior leader roles. It's like this generic statement that they've all copied. But you can't explain the gender pay gap with one thing. It's not just about gender. There's also race as well. Specifically, if we looked at black women, black Muslim women, and you know, the whole intersectional identity, if you're just doing an analysis, you realize that it's not just one thing, it's many things. So the whole one at a time approach doesn't really work either. So avoiding those are, cre are clearly useful. Um, B-R-S-T-O-L, I think one size, I think I've already said one size fits all as well. L is for leadership. L is for leadership. Focus on leaders. You'll hear people say that it all starts at the top. Yeah, it all starts at the top. Culture changes at the top. Yes, it does, but you also need to make sure that you're addressing people at the bottom of the pyramid. One of the things you hear organizations doing is starting employee resource groups, staff networks. They try to make them work. Um, often they, they fall under what um, I learned this term a few years, about five years ago, flags, food, and fun, right? So flags, oh, it's Black History Month, oh, it's Diwali, it's Pride. We're recording this in June, it's Pride. So you're gonna see a lot of, um, colors you're going to see a lot of people at parties what happens during the rest of the year when it's not pride month these so that, that's the whole flags food you know it's going to be jerk chicken on a friday to celebrate uh, the black community for example um we're going to have curries on a particular day to celebrate um asian communities indian communities pakistani community you can see how it all goes on and then fun and this is a huge issue if you look at organizations and the way they represent people from so-called minority groups, often you will see that those people aren't represented doing the boring work. So they'll, they'll be at a party, they'll be at an event, they'll be at a gala, but in terms of actually the day-to-day -day work within that specific organization, you often don't see so-called minority groups doing that. It's always outside of the workplace. This perpetuates this vision, this idea that they don't belong doing legitimate work that sometimes isn't glamorous and fun. Mm, it's so interesting hearing you describe it like that. I haven't heard of those three Fs before. What were they again? They were flags, flags. something, and flag, food and fun. Flags, food and fun. I first heard that actually in, funny enough, I was in Disneyland. I, I was interviewing someone for my podcast. Um, is an American guy, Fernando Serpa, and he was talking about, yeah, you know, flags, food, and fun. He was talking about Cinco de Mayo in uh, the US. And so I was like, oh, okay. And then when he, as soon as he said it, flags, food, and fun, I knew exactly what he was. Mm. It's, it's a common thing. So getting back to the whole Bristol, don't do those things. If you do not make those common mistakes, you will look like no one else. 
you will sound like no one else, your outcomes will be dramatically different. And by the way, all of this is without even having a strategy. Just don't do those things. I said to someone, I said to a lot of people at the beginning of the year, don't talk about the business case for diversity. Just don't use those words. Nothing bad will happen to you. Not many people believe that. Nothing bad will happen to you if you don't talk about the business case for diversity. I'd just love to talk to you a little bit more about the B in Bristol. A lot of what we've been told about the business case for diversity at work is actually flawed and we shouldn't be relying on that. Would you mind just explaining that in a little bit more detail? Because I know that for a lot of people like me, that was quite a big shock. Yes. So there's a couple of ways of looking at it. First, let's go back to the, yeah, the B, organizations rely on a generic business case for diversity. One of the things that I found in my research, when you specifically look at organizations, three biggest problems, and one of them is called performance. Organizations struggle to articulate a business case for diversity for their specific organization. So members of your audience, if you if you were, you know, you get them in a room, they trust you, Faye. So you're going to say, tell us about the business case for diversity. And what they're probably going to say is research shows, and they'll start talking about it's more innovative, it's diversity of thought. And I used to play a game. Everybody talks about the McKinsey report. The very first McKinsey, actually, they've had three now, basically say the same thing. I've done real deep dives into the first two. So I've read the McKinsey reports cover to cover, and they've been misrepresented by a lot of the people who, who, who are promoting this idea of the business case for diversity. So for those of you who haven't read the, the McKinsey report cover to cover, what it says is an argument that says that diversity, and in the first one, diversity meant gender and race or ethnicity, right, in senior leadership roles. So organizations that had that kind of diversity in senior leadership roles, they were more profitable. And I think it was EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, dividends, etc. Spot the accountant, right? right. <laughs> so, but the short version is the bottom line was good if the diversity was good, right? Everybody was saying, and the report obviously span it like that. But if you actually read the report, what it says is, yes, there is a correlation between the two, but we don't know if one causes the other. So it means we don't know if really profitable companies then decide to become, have that type of diversity, or we don't know if because of that diversity, it caused the profits. That's really important. That's a really important distinction. There's also another paper. And by the way, that's one paper. And I know that was based on loads of different countries. If you actually look at the body of research, and there's a one, I'll send you a paper. Maybe we can put that in the show notes. This is a UK study that looked at all different types of diversity, equality, equity. And what they found was it doesn't, the business case for diversity does not hold for all businesses at all times in all industries, right? So it very much depends on what you do, how you manage it. Now, that's a very different argument to everybody saying, well, if you increase diversity, it clearly is going to increase profits, it's going to increase productivity. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows when it's not managed properly, diversity actually leads to conflict in teams, in particular teams. So we really need to be clear and what I would encourage everyone in your audience to think about is 
when you're talking about the business case for diversity, try to be specific about your organization. So, and it's an awkward question, but it's, okay, why is it good for us? Why does it matter to us? And a useful way to think about this is, let's say, Faye, you're in a room with your best friends, okay? Now, you and your best friends, like, I'm going to guess, for the most part, you all want to be happy. Everyone wants to be happy, right? But you're in a room with your best friends, and you say, okay, you all want to be happy. What does that mean? Now, each of you is going to say something very different that is going to make them happy, right? Now, if you were to write those down, because they're your best friends and you know who they are, if I was to read them out, you would be able to tell who that who I'm talking about, wouldn't you? Yeah. Right? This is a similar thing about the business case for diversity or diversity and inclusion in general. I should, if I know your organization, I should be able to read or understand what diversity means to you, why it's important to you, and it should make sense to any stakeholder who has any contact with your business. If you rely on the, well, the research shows, to me, that's a red flag. It means you don't have a business case for diversity. You don't know how diversity and inclusion show up. It's a massive red flag. It's a huge tell. That's so interesting because when I first heard you talking about the fact that actually you don't believe that statement is true, that you you can't just say increasing diversity is going to mean that your organisation is going to do brilliantly and improve at everything, I I was properly shocked and actually it felt a bit scary because you think, oh no, but this is something that everyone's been able to use to push forward with this agenda, which I think is really important. So actually, if you take that away, does that mean that it's going to be harder to make progress and an impact? So it's brilliant to hear you describe that actually, if you dig down into the fact that it's important to think about how it's applicable to your organisation, that not only is there going to be a business case for it, but you're going to be able to get more buy-in because I know what you mean when you say, oh, there is this business case for diversity, so therefore we should be doing this, that actually people can just glaze over and switch off. It's not as impactful, it's not as meaningful, and it's something that you've covered in detail in your podcast as well. So for anyone who's particularly interested in this, like I am, I would definitely recommend going and listening to Dr. Jonathan's podcast. But that's the challenge then, isn't it? It's figuring out, okay, how is this going to benefit our organization? And right now where we're in the midst of a recruitment crisis, my goodness, I think there's a very strong business case for an awful lot of organizations that they have to start embracing diversity and finding other talent pools to tap into to be able to address the issues that they're they're facing at the moment. No, absolutely. And also, the reason why people's, you know, you said their eyes glaze over when they're talking about this is because they don't believe you. That's why. If you're talking about this and people's eyes glaze over because they think this is fiction and they're right in that context because you can't explain it in a way that makes sense. This is the challenge. So it do, it is an issue and you're, you're right. You're talking about this recruitment challenge that's happening now. We're about to enter a recession. All of this stuff gets really expensive. Um, I wrote the other day about losing good people. Like that's, you know, that's really expensive. High staff turnover, the cost of replacing people, the loss of knowledge, the loss of relationships, all of these things 
are incredibly expensive. And anyone who works in HR can explain this a lot better than I can. And so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely necessary. But what I would encourage everybody to do is when we're talking about this so-called business case for diversity, because it's not a belief, this is the benefit of the research. The research shows that this is the case. So this isn't my opinion. It's not, I think this versus anyone else thinks this. This is just how, this is how we build knowledge in a modern workplace, right? Or in modern society. So what I'm saying is let's use those exact same tactics, principles, when we're talking about inclusion or diversity. So getting back to the whole managers, their eyes are glazing over, speak to them in a language that makes sense. Simple as that. You know the acronyms that you use at work. You know that language that I don't know because I haven't, I'm not part of your organization. Speak to them in that language. It will make sense. And if it doesn't, it means that you don't have a good argument. Oh, lots to think about there. Now, I'm going to be really interested to hear what everyone thinks after they've been listening to this, what their thoughts are around how they can actually create a compelling business case within their organisation. But moving on from that for a moment, because I feel I could end up talking to you about that one <laughs> tiny topic that absolutely ages. Moving along from that, your Bristol acronym has shown us all the ways we could potentially be getting our approach to diversity and inclusion wrong within the organization. So we've just explored how we could start to get it right by having a business case that is truly suited to our specific organization that we work in. What are the, some other tips that you could share with us on how to get our approach right? Yeah, and just one last point on the business case. It's, it's less about a business case and more about how diversity and inclusion shows up. So what I would say, and it, the main thing everyone should be spending their time on is solving the three biggest problems, right? People, potential, performance. And this goes back to your recruitment point. People, organizations have trouble engaging the people they want to include. First, you need to know who they are. Why do we want to include them? How could they be excluded? Normally, this is characterized as people from minorities, but it also includes people from the majority because inclusion does mean everyone. So this is a big tip as well. Inclusion isn't just about minority groups. It's about everyone. When you think about it like that, it gives you a much more generative perspective. You, you're, you're more solution focused instead of firefighting, thinking about, oh, what are we doing wrong? You know, a very compliance driven approach. We need to tick a box. We have to do this. So that's number one. Focus on the people. How can we engage the people we want to include? Number two, and this is probably the biggest challenge, is about um, potential, creating a culture of inclusion where everyone can reach their potential. So what is the culture in your organization right now? Who currently benefits? Who are the people who don't benefit? Now, most organizations would like to believe that they're a meritocracy and that everyone rises to the top based on talent, based on hard work, based on effort, all of these types of things. And it's not about who you know. It's not because someone else didn't hear about the opportunity. It's not because I was speaking at an organization recently, apparently 56% of the people who work there got a job from a personal contact, okay? What does that do to the culture of that organization? So you wanna create a culture of inclusion where everyone can reach their potential and we say, Everyone can perform, everyone can belong, everyone can reach their potential. So you need to be thinking about that all the time, specific to your organization. And then the last one was the P we discussed about performance. 
making sure what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? Using the language, the acronyms that people every day use in your organization. If you have to use big words and you're focusing on being clever, it's not going to work. You need to be able to say it to someone and then someone who doesn't even care about diversity and inclusion can repeat it. That's the aim. If they can do that, then you're on the right track. Brilliant. Thank you. And I know that there's so much more advice that you could be sharing with us. I listened to an episode that you released quite recently, I think, about the fact that there are these very simple things we can be doing as well on a daily basis to be able to improve. And one of those things is just purposefully reading or listening around this topic in this space and then sharing. And when you're sharing it, sharing it purposefully. So instead of just saying, oh, there's this great podcast episode I think you might like, or here's a paper that I've heard of that's quite good, saying why you think it's a good idea for someone else to be reading this as well, so that you're building your own knowledge, your own expertise, your own awareness, but you're also spreading that knowledge as well. Absolutely. I think that's really powerful. And especially, this is what we're going to do about it. So for example, someone could like this podcast episode. Someone <laughs> could say, oh, so instead of just sharing it, saying, this is great, you could say, you know, during this, these three things were mentioned. Why don't let's talk about it and let's try and do it. Let's explore it. Let's explore what the business case means for us. Let's explore that culture piece. Let's explore that whole Bristol acronym. Did he spell it out properly? Let's check. You know, this all becomes a nice exercise, brings people together. You're learning together and you're actually going to apply it where you work instead of it being this ambiguous conversation. Yeah, I really liked that idea. Well, as you can tell, because I just brought it up. And another thing that I know that you've been very passionate about is the power of employee resource groups, which are often known as staff networks. I know that we're going to run out of time because I promised this would only take about half an hour. But could I just very quickly get you to touch on that as well? So... A third of my PhD was about employee resource groups. And I really dug into that to look at the detail. I think employee resource groups, the way I describe them, they're like websites in the year 2000. Everybody, everybody has one. Not everybody knows what to do with them. If you think for those of us who remember the year 2000, what websites looked like, they were very much business cards. Right? It just had your own, a phone number, your name, this is where we are. It didn't do anything else. Now, if you look at what a website does for an organization, it's an integral part of the business. That's where I think we need to go with employee resource groups. And specifically, getting back to remember the three biggest problems, if you use them properly, an employee resource group can help you to address the three biggest problems. So it's something that I think is under-resourced, underutilized they are often guilty of the flags, food and fun that we discussed earlier. If you actually apply them in a way that they actually, one, engage people, two, do something useful to enhance people's careers. My whole question in my thesis not, wasn't what can we do to make them better? It's like, what are the characteristics of an employee resource group that can enhance the careers of their members? And I created a whole framework that we don't have time to discuss right now, but uh, maybe they can check it out uh, or check out the podcast. I talk about a lot of this stuff, less so now about the employee resource groups, but the first almost 50 episodes of the show were all about employee resource groups. So if everyone wants that, please check it out.
well, you know what I'm going to have to do now? I'm going to have to actually read your thesis. I think I saw that you got it on your LinkedIn profile. I think it is there, isn't it? I, I put it there. Most people don't read these things, but it's out there. It's out there. All my best ideas from 10 years ago are all there for anyone to read. If you fancy a snooze, but if you want to really, really get deep into all of this, um, yeah, check it out. It covers a lot of things that will make sense and still stand up as well. It's not something that's dated, which I'm, I'm really proud of. Great. Okay. Well, I'm going to be taking a look at that then after we finish recording today. And we're now at the point where I'm going to ask you the same question that I ask every one of my guests, which is what is your top non-fiction book recommendation for us all today? And I'm guessing this is going to be hard for you because you actually have a book club. So I know that you read prolifically and will have read absolutely loads this year already. I do. Yeah, I'm trying to read 100 odd books this year. I, I, I have a caveat first. What For what purpose? Because I'm, oh. I'm probably not going to... Depending on the purpose depends on what I'm going to suggest. So who's it for? Well, who's it for? So if I think of the person who is listening to us right now, they're very likely working in HR, really, really busy, all these demands on their time, but incredibly passionate about their work and want to do an absolutely brilliant job. So which book could you recommend that's going to really help them to move forward with their inclusion and diversity journey within their organisation? Oh, okay. Specifically around diversity and inclusion. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to suggest a book that's on one topic that you can apply it to many. So no one's going to expect me to say this, but there's a book called Disability, The Basics. Disability, The Basics. And I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten the author's name. It completely changed the way I thought about that topic, that experience. But it it very much lends itself to broader ways of thinking about structural inequality um, in particular. So I would say disability, the basics. If you read it, you, you'll, you'll understand why. Brilliant, thank you. And I will put, I will find out who the author is and I'll make sure I put that in the show notes along with the link to the book. So for anyone listening, if you want to go ahead and take a look at that, you can just dip into the show notes and it will be there for you. And we're coming to the time where I'm going to have to say goodbye and come to the end of our interview together today. So for anyone listening who would like to know more about your work, Jonathan, and to potentially get in touch with you, what's the best way of them doing that? So two things I would recommend. One is I write seven days a week on LinkedIn. So find me on LinkedIn, Dr. Jonathan Ashong Lamptey. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. But those are places where you'll find me writing every single day. And also my website is theelementofinclusion.com and our podcast is another useful way. We're five years, so we're in our sixth year of informing and educating using applied research, thought leadership. Check out the podcast. That will give you a nice introduction into everything that we do. And for anyone who wants to go further, you'll be able to find ways to do that. Fantastic. And for closing today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of listening to my voice wrapping up the episode, I love the way that Jonathan wraps up his episodes every week. So he is kindly going to say goodbye to you all now with his own wrap up. So let's wrap this up. What are the key messages here? 
One, the business case for diversity is not what you think. Two, organizations make three big problems on their inclusion journey. And three, there are seven common mistakes that organizations make and you need to avoid. So what do you think? Which of these mistakes have you been making on your inclusion journey? Get in touch and leave a message. Faye would love to hear from you.